Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This Sunday, in the historic Beacon Hill neighborhood of Decatur, a Confederate monument will be replaced by a sculpture honoring the heroism of African ancestors. Later this hour, sculptor Alex Suavoni will tell us about her work commissioned as part of the Beacon Hill Black Alliance Art for the People project. First, in our polarized nation at this time, it's almost impossible to imagine a moment when Democrats joined Republicans and conservatives would agree with liberals. But that occurred when Judge Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed as a justice to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1981. Justice O'Connor is the subject of a new documentary on PBS, part of the series American Experience. Michelle Ferrari produced, wrote, and directed the documentary. She joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's a great pleasure to be here. You have an impressive roster of documentaries to your credits. And last year, you produced The Vote for American Experience about women's suffrage and the 19th Amendment. How did that work inform your making of this documentary about Sandra Day O'Connor? That's a very interesting question. This film was commissioned. Um, American Experience had optioned the book upon which it is based, and they brought it to me. So I can't say that you know, the idea for producing this film evolved from my work on the vote. Um, but I do think that the vote raised questions about the nature of our democracy and the nature of social change that were equally relevant in the making of this film and in some ways felt like a continuation of a conversation that was started by the vote. How did her upbringing influence her drive and determination later in life. The scenes of her growing up on the ranch are just fantastic. She, you know, she grew up in the middle of nowhere and for the first many years of her life was an only child. And her son talks about the fact that her first friends, aside from the animals on the ranch, were cowboys. So her earliest acquaintances were adults, her parents and these ranch hands. And I think she learned poise very early in her life, which served her well throughout her life. And then too, she learned the independence that you learn living in the middle of nowhere, you know, where you can't run down to the corner store for whatever it is that you need. And when you start a job and you're responsible for that job, you have to finish that job. One of the interviews in the film, Rick Perlstein, 
in one of his books, talks about the sort of typical presidential personality as being a person whose mother told them they could do anything and their father told them they never were enough. And I think that, you know, that dichotomy is a little too stark for Sandra Day O'Connor, but I think there is something there that rings true, which is to say that she had no sense of any limits on her, what she could accomplish because uh, she was a woman, but she also was always striving to be better. Would you share the story about the first time she delivered lunch to the ranch hands? That speaks to what you were saying about not being able to satisfy one's father. It's a great story. And initially, it wasn't necessarily in my mind as part of the story. But as I did my first round of interviews, every single solitary person told me that story. So I decided <laughs> I decided that it needed to be in the film. So she's 15 and she sent out, uh, she's delivering lunch to the ranch hands who are working the roundup some distance from the actual homestead. And she and her mother prepare the lunch and she packs it into uh, an old Willie's Jeep and she gets into the Jeep and begins driving. She started driving before she could barely see over the dashboard. And en route, she gets a flat tire. And so there she is in the middle of nowhere, no paved roads, all on her own and has to change the tire and get to the roundup on time. Unfortunately, she does not get there on time. She's a bit late. And when she arrives, she's quite proud of herself for having changed a tire single-handedly um, with no experience doing so. And um, she says, dad, he says, you're late. And she says, well, dad, I had a flat tire and I fixed it. And he said, next time leave earlier. Mm, never enough. Yeah. <laughs> Although it taught her that she must be prepared for anything along that proverbial road. Exactly. She never defined herself as a feminist when the women's lib movement was becoming popular, but she voted in ways that benefited women. Would you talk about how she walked that line between not presenting herself as a feminist yet advancing the cause of equal rights. You know, she's a very interesting person. I spend a fair bit of time in the film talking about her independence, and I think that's true across the board. You know, later in her life, when identity politics became a thing, she was very opposed to them. And I think that had to do with the fact that she did not like being put in a box herself. One of her biographers, Linda Hirschman, refers to her as at once a girl's girl and a man's man. I think she was very comfortable with people and she wanted to be taken on her own terms, not as a woman, not as a professional woman necessarily, just as a person. And so I think she was disinclined toward any kind of showy identification with a cause or an identity. Nevertheless, she knew that she'd been discriminated against when she was looking for work as an attorney, when she was first out of law school. And I think she felt the sting of that, even though she didn't like to talk about it in those terms. Although I would never say she was a robust champion of women's rights, she was attuned to the way in which people get put into boxes, and she wasn't having it. One thing that comes out resoundingly in your documentary is how nuanced she was about everything. And I was thinking, how refreshing to have someone in power who demonstrates such depth of thought and fairness without an agenda. I mean, you point out the difference between her and Antonin Scalia. It's, it's astonishing. You know, um, you very nearly brought me to tears in the fact of, by the fact that you appreciated that part of the documentary, because that indeed is what interested me most about Sandra Day O'Connor. If you approach her story at first glance, it's, it's sort of obviously about shattering the glass ceiling. Um, and at this point, that's a fairly familiar story, although in many ways she was an unlikely protagonist for that story. 
so, you know, the fact that she was the first woman on the Supreme Court was in many ways the film's reason for being. But what struck me is that, you know, at some juncture, and I'd argue it was even before Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the court, O'Connor's story was no longer about being the first. It was about her as a justice and her style on the bench. And I was very intrigued by that style, by her vision of the court's role in American life and her penchant, indeed her gift for building consensus, which increasingly seems to me a lost art, as you pointed out. I just found it incredibly compelling. And I had a conversation with my business partner, a person I collaborate with frequently. And initially he said, oh, you're making a film about Switzerland and no one's interested in Switzerland. Oh, but I didn't see it that way. I didn't feel it that way. I didn't experience that way. I have nothing but respect for revolutionaries, for people who are willing to go to extremes in defense of a principle or to realize a vision for the future. But I also think that in a nation of 300 million people, there's also a real need for caution and compromise for people who pull toward the middle. Because I think most Americans, at least when we're not faced with a stark either or choice, tend to be quite moderate in our views. I think a lot of people recognize the complexities of some of our more persistent social issues. And the fact that she did made me very enamored of her. Yeah. In fact, there is a quote I loved in the film. She dazzled them all. Mm. And, and she was fantastic with powerful men. But this wasn't referring to physical beauty or any type of manipulative behavior, it was from this essential warmth and interest she had in learning about her subject, whether it's meeting someone at a party or reviewing an opinion. Absolutely. You know, even before I read Evan Thomas's book, the book that the film is based on, I watched the 2002 interview with Charlie Rose that is threaded throughout the film. And I just was so charmed by her. I, I loved her dry wit and the way she resisted any attempt to interpret or spin her experience. Um, I felt like her personal attributes were on full display in that interview. And I think that those attributes are in large measure responsible for her success. I didn't encounter anyone either in the book or anyone that I spoke to for the film who didn't genuinely like her. Hmm. Including the affection and the warmth on display in the portion where you address her relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Hmm. Their relationship is heartwarming, particularly in these polarized times, because they didn't agree, agree on a whole lot, but they had a real, it was a real mutual admiration society. Sandra Day O'Connor hired more clerks from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's office before she was on the court than from anywhere else, any single other place, which I think, you know, signals the respect that she had for her. And then too, as we talk about in the film, I think it was such an enormous relief to Justice O'Connor to be freed from the appellation of the first and the only. Yes, indeed. And get a ladies' room after 12 years exactly. of waiting. Can you imagine? <laughs> no, it, I can't. It reminded me of hidden figures. Yes. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Oh. Speaking of admiration, her marriage was a love story for the ages, and it's one of equals. Yes, which was extraordinarily unusual for a 1950s marriage. When I first spoke to Scott, her son, I said, you know, in reading about Justice O'Connor, I was, I kept thinking of the, um, the Anjali television commercial. Do you remember that commercial? I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, the, and the message was, right, that women can have it all, which, you know, I think is a message my generation got in spades and a generation younger than me has learned is maybe rare, if not outright false. 
But Sandra Day O'Connor actually did kind of have it all. And I think part of the way that she managed it was she had this incredibly supportive, loving relationship and a person in her corner who thought the world of her, thought she could do anything and was willing to help her realize whatever ambition she had. Have you met her? I have not had the privilege. And it's so odd for me, actually, Lois, throughout the film, she's referred to in the past tense, which, you know, it's complicated. She retired from public life and I have not had the privilege of meeting her, although I do feel that I know her somewhat. But we're, we're dealing with her public life and it made sense to deal with it in the past tense. But I think it's important that people know she's still alive. I'm glad to hear you point that out. And I'd like to think that she will see this and want to meet you afterward. That would be amazing and lovely. And I would so welcome that. Michelle Ferrari, I so admire your work. And it's really been a privilege to talk with you. Thank you so much, Lois. I admire your work also. And I'm very grateful to have been asked to be on the show. Director and producer Michelle Ferrari. The documentary Sandra Day O'Connor, the first, will air on our PBS station, ATL-PBA, on Monday, September 14th at 9 p.m. It's part of this series, American Experience. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll revisit my 2018 interview with the musician Steve Earle. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It might take less time to list what Steve Earle is not, but for now, we'll try to get everything in. He is a singer-songwriter, musician, actor, radio host, playwright, author, and activist, with a biography that fits the name of his album, So You Want to Be an Outlaw. He joins us now in studio. Steve Earle, welcome to City Lights. It's good to be here. Great to have you. You've written short stories and a novel, and your own bio reads like an incredible piece of fiction. Yet even as an outlaw, you've been very productive, so... Beyond your storied life of addiction, serving time in jail, being a troubadour, what does the outlaw spirit mean exactly? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the the whole existence of this record was to rehabilitate that term because I think there's a tendency to think the outlaw country thing is applied to a certain period in Nashville and Austin, you know, in the 70s, which is when I came from Texas to Nashville. So I sort of had a foot in both places when it was happening. Um, so I was there, you know, and I witnessed it. And um, it was, the idea was people look back on it, and especially younger musicians that emulating those guys, and they think that the term outlaw applied to, and I had an Australian journalist say, well, it really was about your lifestyle, wasn't it? The hmm. things that you're, and it wasn't. That's not where that term came from. The truth is, George Jones was not going to the liquor store at 4 o'clock in the morning on a lawnmower. He was going, liquor stores are closed at 4 o'clock in the morning <laughs> in Tennessee. He was going someplace else to get someplace else. So 
Hillbilly singers always took drugs. They did other stuff that got them into trouble. Um, so a lot of they're just people, you know, that have problems with substances and people that don't deal well with success in every walk of life, and probably more of them in show business than any other. And, and country music's no different. The term outlaw came from the fact that you know it was a lot. It's kind of a chain of events that I sort of witnesses. In 1971 or so, Willie Nelson moves back to Texas, and Doug Som, who had been in the, had the Sir Douglas Quintet, you know, she's about a mover, all that stuff, who was my local, you know, hometown rock and roll hero growing up in San Antonio, Texas, had been in, on the West Coast for a while. He moved back to Austin around the same time. And it was it was Doug who actually um, made Willie aware that he could be playing for a different audience if he played Armadillo World Headquarters and these places that were essentially you know hippie joints. And he also introduced Willie um, to Jerry Wexler, who signed him to Atlantic Records, and Willie made Shotgun Willie in Phases and Stages. And, and then, you know, that was where all this began. Waylon Jennings, who was one of his best friends, saw Willie having an artistic freedom he had never had and always wanted. And he made the record that really kind of set the tone. And the one I was really emulating on this record is a record called Honky Tonk Heroes, which was a record of all Billy Joe Shaver songs that that, uh, that Waylon Jennings uh, made, in 19, made in 1972. It took him until 1973 to get RCA to, to actually release it. But that's what it was about. It was about country artists realizing that rock artists had artistic freedom that they didn't have and so they stood up for to be able to make records the way they wanted to therefore they got tagged as outlaws and that's what it was really about so it's really more of an assertion of their identity and it must have felt very liberating because i mean willie nelson is a hippie he is not what you would consider you know Ronald Opry. Well, but the thing is, he was always a very sophisticated songwriter. His, his, his melodies were always sophisticated. They were they owed more to Cole Porter than they did everything else. He's a huge Cole Porter fan. You know, and, I was and, amazed. I, I only recently learned that he's recorded a significant amount from the great american song no he has he has several records because he's always been fascinated he always listened to that stuff you know i think it's really important that most of us that went to national my 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 group of contemporaries my teachers were towns van sant and guy clark and you know chris christopherson had already been to nashville and left by the time i got there he was already on the west coast and all of us beginning with chris we're all post bob dylan songwriters that that might have gone to New York or L.A., but we were from the South, and there was, you know, there were publishing companies that would sign us to deals so we didn't have to have jobs in Nashville <laughs> that were interested in, in the way that we wrote songs. So we went there instead. Um, Willie is, and this is to his credit, Billy Joe Shaver, the generation just before us, they're not post-Bob Dylan songwriters. They, they learned about, you know, even Johnny Cash learned about Bob Dylan after already having an identity themselves bob dylan was in you know they were an influence on bob dylan and at the same time they realized how important bob dylan was so it's kind of a different deal um but willie um i don't know i i kind of you know where willie's um you know there's sings the second verse on the title track on this record and and you know it's gotten to be a thing of of uh, i recorded it in a studio that 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 willie partially owns in, in austin texas and and um i just kind of uh you know, it, it comes back to that for me. When, when Willie Nelson moved back to Texas, I stopped getting my ass kicked by, you know, guys. I, I found myself standing out in a, a cow pasture with people that, that, you know, I was at war with, you know, listening to the same bands. And, and Texas was headed for being something completely different than it turned out to be. When you land in Austin and you walk past that statue of Barbara Jordan, that's the Texas that I left in 1972. Nobody could imagine a Republican governor. Nobody could imagine. I thought it was going to be Southern California. I thought that's where it was headed. And Well, I guess in Austin you can be. Well, kind of. I mean, the difference is Austin's... Austin's unrecognizable to me too because there were you know two hundred fifty thousand people there when I left. It's and very now, corporate. It, it's now, huge. It? It's very. It's very. Um, it's very dot com. It's very, you know, like different kinds of, of businesses um, that, that you know tech businesses that that and it's it's very young. So it's very much a youth culture. But but there's some people. 
there aren't it's not the you know it's the blue city in the middle of the the red state yeah. but, I, but but just barely i think there's a lot of people there that probably secretly vote republican they just don't want anybody <laughs> in the coffee shop to know well steve earl your new album is so you want to be an outlaw and a lot of this album is defined by loss loss of love and loss of one of your mentors, Guy Clark, and it's dedicated to Waylon Jennings, whom you mentioned. I suppose it can be easy to dwell on loss, but that has that theme become more prominent in your life? I think that's, that's, you know, I mean, this, this record, you know, the last record that I made was just a blues record, so that was just kind of about, you know, that kind of music. Um, the record before that um, was largely about death and mortality. So I think those are that's the things. Loss. That, that's loss. Yeah, that's the things that you start thinking about as you get older, or either that or you stop thinking at all, which is kind of, kind of a death in and of itself. I follow Ramdas, and everything Ramdas has written um, for the last, you know, he Ramdas had a had a stroke twenty years ago, and and he's been in a wheelchair ever since, and. Usually people don't survive that, but but for a few years. But everything he's written has been about aging and dying, and and you know I'm not trying to hurry up that process. I'm I'm but I'm not desperately trying to slow it down. I'm trying to 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 literally um, you know accept that you know accept entropy to a certain extent, but you know try to go forward where I can and and make as much as I can. You know make as much art as I can while I'm here. And, and I also have a little boy who's, who's not quite eight years old who has autism and I got to try to find a way to make sure he's, I don't know. It's, it's very, it's too early to tell what, how John Henry's gonna, gonna be when he grows up, whether he'll be able to take care of himself or not. He still doesn't speak, but mm-hmm. he's really smart and I don't know. I don't know how that's going to turn out. So I have to try to prepare something Indeed. for him. So at least I know why I wake up in the morning every day, but loss is just, Loss is, is is inevitable. It's just part of what we go through. You know, yeah. you lose stuff your whole life, and and you either learn how to deal with it or you don't. I think everybody deals with it. They just deal with it the way that they they do. I'm I'm I don't mourn the the way that most um, Western people do. I've discovered. I mean, from losing my father and a few other folks important to me. Um, I don't. Um, I really do believe that death's part of life, and I don't. Um, I don't dwell on it very much. It's just one of those, it's it's the one thing you're not going to get out of no matter what you do. Well, let's listen a bit to Goodbye Michelangelo. Goodbye Michelangelo Ain't no trouble where you go Ain't no pain to burn you blind just enough to draw a line Goodbye, my soul fairly well Gone to heaven, been to hell Maybe just New Mexico Goodbye, Michelangelo Too long, my captain, adios. Sail upon the sea ghost. Chase the white whale to the end. Bring the story back again. I'm bound to follow you someday. You have always shown the way. Gorgeous guitar playing, really haunting. It it was for Guy Clark. That yeah, he wrote yeah. This. Lost Guy last year, and and it was you know uh, he had cancer for a long time. He's too tough for his own good, um, you know. But he uh, he the last ten years, you know, he was sick the whole time. But he had um, he he started co-writing with all these younger writers, and it kept him writing, and he wrote almost until the end. And um, it's something you know he taught me not to do was co-write. 
and uh, but he had to learn to do it because it was the only way that he could keep going. He also taught me not to use a thesaurus or a rhyme dictionary, and we both unlearned that over the years. <laughs> we both use them towards you know. I, I use I use I use them every day, but um, I didn't know there were rhyme dictionaries. Oh no, sure, there has been for a long time. Yeah, yeah. There's one in my phone actually. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with singer-songwriter Steve Earle. So you got to dwell on loss with some of the greats, like outlaw original Willie Nelson, whom you talked about earlier, and Miranda Lambert. And with these collaborations, the song seems so fitting to both your experiences. We are going to listen to a little bit of This Is How It Ends with Miranda. Turn around and look at how far we come from Two hearts beating like a single drum Said you'd never lie and I promise that I'd never run Forever run just another way back then Swore together ever after began then Now this is how it ends I should have seen it coming from the start Comes to love that falling is the easy part Everybody told me you were only gonna break my heart Then I ran a stone and back again Thought I'd try to find myself a lover and a friend Now this is how it Steve, when teaming up with other musical legends, do you decide beforehand on the subject you're both drawn to, or like this recording with Miranda, does it just inherently happen during the songwriting? I just decided I was going to co-write something for a while, and a lot of that had to do with the guy and and the fact that he had been doing it, and I hadn't done any co-writing in a long time, Um, and... Also, my publisher had advanced me a lot of money on a um, just what was an administration deal, and I felt like I owed them something. And, <laughs> and uh, so I started making appointments to go to, to to Nashville to write with writers again. And Miranda, I've known casually for a while, and um, it was just um, you know I met her because her and my ex wife used to get their hair cut the same place. So literally <laughs> met her in the beauty shop. So. Um, it was uh, it was just one of those things that um, you know we talked about. It. it was really hard to schedule because we were both really busy, and then we we just got together to write a song, and that's just what we wrote. I mean, it was look the the deal with this job is is that people don't really care about what happens to me or what happens to Miranda. Um, they wait, wait, why why do you say that? They, in, the, in the process of writing a song, they don't really. Maybe people that are reading, you know, stuff that they read and when they're in the line at the supermarket care, but that, but that's not who the audience really is. The audience is most people. They don't want to hear that you feeling sorry for yourself because you're riding around a bus that costs more than their house. They're they're, it's what they have in common with your experience it's what it's about empathy that's what this job is so you know there's like um when i was there's a song on my first record called little rock and roller and um you know i played it last night because yesterday was justin's birthday but i read it when justin was three my oldest son justin who who turned 36 yesterday that's hard to believe but um he um you know there was i wrote the song it's about missing your kids when you're on the road and 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 um, Johnny Cash came up to me at a fundraiser, and it was a big deal that Johnny Cash was even talking to me. Sure. I mean, I'd known him casually for a while, but he walked, came across the room and said, I really like that song, Little Rock and Roller. And then about six days later, I was back out on the road, and a guy walked up to me, a truck driver in a truck stop, said, you know, that song of yours, Little Rock and Roller, I really like that. And that's when I realized what the job is. And it doesn't... You know, it's the part of it that's the same experience to Johnny Cash as it is to a truck driver. And, and you know, those things, Miranda and I wrote about, you know, it's pretty easy to try to make a big deal about, about both of us writing a song about a relationship ending and and not necessarily having control of that. But it just, you know, it did, did happen to both of us. But uh, And so it's just what we wrote, but it wasn't a plan. We just walked in and, you know, um, I think the, the, I think the, the title was hers. 
Ah. You know, and the melody was mine when we started, and and then we just we literally we wrote the first verse and the chorus in a room together, and we didn't get any further that day, and we did the rest of it by texting over the next couple of months, and then and then uh, she came to Austin, and and she's there present on as the track is being cut. It's a live vocal, which is both of us standing out in the studio singing it together, and which is the way I'd like to do duets. Willie, we didn't get to do that because. We made this record the first week in December, and once that became the schedule, I knew where he'd be. He'd be in Maui by that time. So, I, <laughs> poor me, I had to go to Maui to get Willie's vocal on the record. So. Well, let's listen to a little bit of the title track, So You Want to Be an Outlaw. So you want to be an outlaw, but take it from me. It's living on the highway, ain't never thing supposed to be. Everybody reckons that they want to be free. Ain't nobody wants to be alone. Stumbling in the Tennessee, I said, Angel, you can never go home. Never go home. Never go home. If you want to be an outlaw, you can never go home. So you want to be an outlaw, better listen up, kid. Steal a million dollars and you have to keep it here. Ain't no place to spend it in the desert if you did. This is a great song. I'm really proud of it. You know, it, it, most songs that are they're like, um, it's not necessarily always a title track. Sometimes a title track. My records are kind of concept records. I just grew up in that era, so I write them all to be albums. You know, and and I don't. Um, you know, it's probably that's probably archaic in and of itself, but I'll probably stick with that game plan, you know, to the end because it's what I know. It's, it's, it's how I know to, to to write songs. Well, it's been working very well, and it certainly pleases many listeners. Uh, Steve Earle, I hope you will keep spreading that empathy. It's it's great to have that at the heart of your art. Well, thank you very much, musician Steve Earle. That interview was recorded in 2018 when his album, So You Want to Be an Outlaw, was released. At the time, Earl spoke at length about empathy and loss. Sadly, loss struck his family again. Earl's adult son, Justin Towns Earl, passed away just over a year ago at the age of 38. Steve Earle's 2021 release, J.T., is a tribute to his late son. The artist is currently touring North America in support of that album. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Alex Wavoni is an Atlanta-based artist who uses her love for toy design, sculpting, ancient spirituality, and graphic design to create works that reflect her view of the world around her. Coming up soon, an unveiling of her new public art sculpture, What Sonia Said, commissioned as part of the Art for the People project of the Beacon Hill Black Alliance for Human Rights. Alex Suavoni joins us now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me again. Alex, we last spoke in December after your light-based installation appeared in Woodruff Park. What kind of response did you receive from the Afrofuturistic monument Atlantis Rising? 
It was amazing. It was a little overwhelming, actually, to see how community members interacted with it, the online response, the way that uh, people were coming up out of the woodworks in my email wanting to to speak and, and talk about the piece on different platforms. It was just like really overwhelming, especially for uh, my first piece. It was like it lifted my spirits and made me feel really good to undertake something so huge and be able to get that response from the community. Oh, I can imagine. And similarly, what was your reaction when you were awarded the commission by the Beacon Hill Black Alliance for Human Rights to create this public art sculpture? I was honored to be able to continue uh, making work for communities to view and, and have. And I think it was it's a really good thing that they're doing over at AFP because work isn't always made for, you know, the community in this way. No. Did they give you any guidelines or were there requirements for this piece? Yes, there were extensive guidelines. (laughs) There were um, guidelines that required the artist to speak about erasure of Black um, women, to talk about the history of Native Americans in the in the area of uh, Beacon Hill to talk about Africans, uh, talk uh, black people in general, to talk about heroism and kind of interweave just the history of that space, the history of Atlanta in that in that space, and heroism and how to interweave that legacy with what the community is trying to be right now. And I think in your artist statement, you make the point that heroes are not created magically from some other universe or supernatural powers. I was intrigued with reading about your philosophy. Would you talk about how you see the role of the artist? Sure. The role of an artist is to kind of translate what the human experience is into something. And it could be if we think about it, like everything that exists outside of like food, water, <laughs> air, the ground, like everything that isn't given to us by the universe, by whatever thing we believe in, is made by someone, either for some type of function, like, you know, architecture is a function of light shelter, but it is an art. And I think it's the responsibility of art artists and artisans to kind of translate the human experience into objects, even if it's hard to kind of articulate it and you may not understand it from your first viewing of it or first interaction with it, I think it's still the artist's responsibility to kind of translate the human experience in whatever way that they deem necessary. And you mentioned honoring the many peoples who inhabited what we know now as the Atlanta area. I know that your work is informed by spiritual imagery and what you call the future ancient style. That seems like a contradiction in terms. It does. (laughs) Would you tell us about what future ancient means? Future ancient is a concept of what would it be like for the people who come after us to uncover what we have right now? What would they think of this time? What would they think about 2020, 2021? So that's what I mean by future ancient. Like this is going to be ancient to someone in the future. And I'm kind of thinking in that way, like what do I want to say about these times with my work? And what are you saying with this Sonia Sanchez piece? What Sonia says, I'm saying that there is a network that exists throughout culture and time between indigenous peoples, between persons who are descendants of chattel slavery in the the continent of Africa throughout the diaspora. In the community of Beacon Hill, there's a history of, of heroism that exists that has been passed down. And I kind of translate that into an analogy with fire, which is why I say with what Sonia said, because what Sonia says in her poem, Catch the Fire, is that ancestors came before us and made a way for us to do what we're doing now. And it's like a passing of a flame to go ahead and stand in that same 
that same truth and that same power and do something great for yourself and for the people around you so that the people after you can catch that fire and do something great as well. I think that's a poetic view on your part. <laughs> Thank you. Poetic view of a visual artist. So would you talk a bit about the Art for the People project? What Art for the People is doing is beautiful because public art is for the public. It's, it's for the people. And so having an organization that is, is keen on making sure that the people who are in these surrounding areas are represented in the art that's created and displayed in that area is brilliant. And I'm, I'm really glad to be working with them. Mm -hmm. Beacon Hill has been working for more than three years to remove symbols of white supremacy in Decatur's public square. Last June, one of those monuments, a 30-foot-tall obelisk that had been erected in 1908 by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, was taken off its pedestal. What ideas came to mind when thinking of a statue or sculpture that should replace it? I think that any symbol that represents where that community wants to go, because the thing about history is like everybody can can attest that it, it, it happened, <laughs> but it doesn't, if the ideals don't align with where the community wants to go, it no longer serves anyone. So any monument that the community agrees upon that represents what they believe should be the inspiration for whatever the community wants to become should go there. And thinking about the context of Sonia Sanchez and her poetry, is it important for the viewer of your sculpture to know who she was? I, I think so. I think it's important to, to at least know the poem. And to actually, there's videos of her on YouTube performing it. I think it's important to, um, to see her perform it in, in the vigor and the passion that she performs it in. But yeah, she's a, a brilliant poet, activist, and I think it, it, it would be um, enriching for people to, to, to discover who she is. So will there be any context with the sculpture? There is going to be a QR code that's going to be on a display next to the sculpture that visitors are going to be able to, to scan. And there's actually a, a musical score uh, that goes along with the piece that's going to be displayed on a website that's on the Beacon Hills domain that's going to have all this information available um, and links to it. Oh, that's wonderful. Is it original music? or Yes. These... Whoa. What can you tell us about it? So Down to Mars is a production team based out of New York right now, and they're mostly uh, church musicians. And in church music culture, there's a term, start low, go slow, rise higher, catch fire. Basically what that is, is there's a, a moment in black church services where things kind of just take a turn and the music becomes very rhythmic and inspiring and people move around and they they shout and different things of that nature. So I wanted to kind of align that concept because I am having a, a fire theme with this work to align the music with that same idea, like make it feel like catching fire. It's beautiful. There's full band, saxophone, trumpet, guitar, bass, keys, drums, everything. It's beautiful. It's very jazz and um, gospel-oriented as well. This has been very interesting, and, and I thank you. Thank you so much for having me. The unveiling of Alex Wavoni's sculpture will take place September 12th, Sunday at 2 p.m. in Decatur. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. We have new COVID-related performance news for you now. 
In a statement on Thursday, Synchronicity Theater decided to follow suit with other local theaters and implemented new COVID safety protocols. The theater, which has had live production since October of 2020, has announced they're tightening their restrictions. While Georgia remains in the high-risk category for COVID-19, Synchronicity Theater will now require proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test. Plus, all audience members will also be required to wear a mask at all times. All staff and actors at Synchronicity have been fully vaccinated and undergo daily symptom check-ins, and the theater has renovated their air intakes and added HEPA filters. All of this is happening in time for Synchronicity's production of The Bluest Eye, opening September 23rd. For more information, their website is synchrotheater.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the late John Portman's final artistic contribution to our city, the Cohen Sculpture is now in its permanent home on the Georgia Tech campus. Mickey Steinberg, Portman's lifelong collaborator, will join us to share the story behind the sculpture. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.